You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying it. They call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. What happened to me? Uh, my friends and I played pub trivia for the first time in about a million years. I went to a friend of a friend's pole dancing competition dress rehearsal, which was a trip. Started officially planning my friend's baby shower. Frankly, when it hit Friday, I got whiplash. Also, this is releasing the day before my birthday. I'm just kidding. I don't care. I turn 34 tomorrow um, as as this releases. Um, so like this week has just been a haze as I close out 33. What a year. <laughs> anyway, this week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got two Alamo Drafthouse experiences. Not sponsored, though it is going to feel like that for the next few weeks, if I'm being honest. But I saw a Saw movie double feature and I last night, so Friday night, went to the Mummy movie party, which apparently they have every year. With the Saw double feature, it was just a pretty much your straight double feature. I hadn't seen any of the Saw movies since Spiral came out, however many years that was. I think it was like two or three years ago now. So it's always a fun time to re-traumatize your eyes with three hours of what is basically torture porn. The first two are probably the best ones and have probably the most of a plot, if you want to call it that. As always, love me the Alamo Draft House. Despite the 45-minute drive, it sometimes takes me to get there. I, I can't get enough. I just realized last night, I'm there for like the next four or five Fridays. So it's going to be like six weeks in a row that I've gone to the Alamo Draft House. Their Halloween programming is great. And then the Mummy movie party was super fun. I guess this is a yearly one they do. They don't always do certain movies every year. And I mean, it sells out every time. So why stop? Now, if with the movie party, I did the Dirty Dancing one a few months ago, they usually give you props. The props on this one left a little bit something to be desired because they were just little plastic guys. But I still had a great time. Um, highlight other than getting to see one of my favorite films on the big screen for the first time in like 25 years was getting the official like yellow and black bumper sticker that says something along the lines of honk if you'd rather be watching the 1999 cinematic classic The Mummy starring Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. The movie party was sponsored by that company, so they gave us a bumper sticker. They gave us some tattoos also. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a tchotchke queen, and I was underwhelmed by the tchotchkes. <laughs> we did have fun with the little, like, little plastic cat they gave us and the little plastic, uh, little scarab guy. I was bugging my friend with it the whole time. I had a great time. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> I also, Dan listens to this. I hid the bug in the donut holes for like half an hour, like hoping you'd reach in and not notice and then just touch it. But then you never did. And I wanted the donut hole. So I ate it. Not the the donut hole, not the bug. <laughs> and then we've got strike updates. These are piping hot strike updates because for the last few days since Wednesday, I believe things have been occurring hot and heavy, it feels like. 
the WGA and AMPTP have been back at the negotiation table like for something like 14 to 16 hours a day since Wednesday and even released a joint statement saying things are going well. As of this morning, no deal has been struck. But for this very brief moment, it looks like the studios and the guild leadership are finally actively working to find a resolution versus just muckraking each other in the press. As I record this on Saturday, negotiations are still ongoing, so there's a teeny tiny chance a resolution is made on the eve of this episode's release. If I'm still editing when that happens, I'll add something in here. Well, hey there, hi there. From 5 p.m. on Friday, I recorded this around 1230. So five hours in the future from the me you just heard. Uh, There's no deal yet as of this moment, but the lawyers have been summoned. And from the sounds of it, the final touches are being put on the new three-year deal for the writers. So we are likely to hear that the strike for the writers, not for the actors, that will be next, is probably going to come to an end by midnight tonight. So when this episode goes live, if it doesn't, something horrifically awful has happened. But yeah, it looks like we are in the end game for the writers strike. So hooray for that. And now back to 12 p.m. Caitlin. And now on to this week's topic. This week for our final 50 screen queen, we've got the life and career of the iconic Audrey Hepburn. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Why don't you take a little time for yourself? Maybe another hour. Live dangerously. Take the whole day. I could do some of the things I've always wanted to. Like what? Oh, you can't imagine. I'd I'd like to do just whatever I like. The whole day long. <laughs> things like having your hair cut, eating gelato. Yes, and I'd, I'd like to sit at a sidewalk cafe and look in shop windows, walk in the rain, have fun and maybe some excitement. Doesn't seem much to you, does it? It's great. Tell you what, why don't we do all those things together? But don't you have to work? Work now. Today is going to be a holiday. But you don't want to do a lot of silly things. Don't I? First wish, one sidewalk cafe coming right up. I'll start this episode the way Audrey Hepburn once said she'd start the story of her own life if she'd ever written an autobiography. Audrey Kathleen Rustin was born on May 4th, 1929 in Brussels, and she died three weeks later. She contracted whooping cough, stopping breathing, and her mother quote-unquote spanked her back to life. Speaking of her mother, her name was Baroness Ella von Heemstra, a Dutch noblewoman and Christian scientist. Her father, Joseph Victor Anthony Rustin, was a British citizen with a lesser but also fancy pedigree who worked for a trading company when the two married, but soon after the couple moved to Europe from the West Indies where they'd met, and he began working for a loan company in London before relocating to Brussels where Audrey was born. It was a second marriage for both of them. In the mid-1930s, Audrey's parents recruited and collected donations for the British Union of Fascists. Audrey's mother even met Adolf Hitler and even wrote favorable articles about him in those early days. Joseph then low-key abandoned his family in 1935 when Audrey was six, which had a permanent effect on her. Audrey would later state that her father's departure was, quote, the most traumatic event of my life, which is saying something given what I'm about to tell you happened to her. 
her. That same year, her mother moved with Audrey to her family's estate. From the wings, her father expressed a desire for Audrey to be educated in England. So in 1937, she was sent to live in Kent, where she was educated at a small private school. Her parents officially divorced in 1938, and Audrey did not speak to her father again for over 20 years. After Britain declared war on Germany in September 1939, the family moved to Holland in the hopes that the Netherlands would remain neutral, as they did in World War I, and therefore be spared from German attacks or invasion. While there, Audrey began taking ballet lessons during her last years at boarding school. When the Germans invaded the Netherlands in 1940, Audrey began using the name Edda von Heemstra because a quote-unquote English-sounding name was too dangerous during German occupation. Her family was profoundly affected by this occupation. Two of her uncles were taken, one was executed, and her brothers had to go underground. Audrey later stated that, quote, Had we known we were going to be occupied for five years, we might have all shot ourselves. We thought it might be over next week, six months, next year. That's how we got through. In 1942, after her uncle was wrongfully executed for being a saboteur for the resistance movement, Audrey's mother, who had flirted with Nazism up to this point, changed her tune. Turns out Nazis, not great people. Audrey's half-brother Ian had also been deported to Berlin to work in a German labor camp, and her other half-brother Alex had gone into hiding to avoid the same fate. The family was being targeted specifically because of their status in Dutch society. After her uncle's death, the family went to live with Audrey's grandfather. Around that time, Audrey began performing silent dance performances, which reportedly raised money for the Dutch resistance effort. There are conflicted reports about how involved she was in the resistance movement as a whole, so no way to tell for certain. She also volunteered at a hospital that was the center of resistance activities in Velp, and her family temporarily hid a British paratrooper in their home. In addition to other traumatic events, Audrey even witnessed the transportation of Dutch Jews to concentration camps, later stating that, quote, More than once I was at the station seeing train loads of Jews being transported, seeing all these faces over the top of the wagon. I remember, very sharply, one little boy standing with his parents on the platform, very pale, very blonde, wearing a coat that was much too big for him, and he stepped on the train. I was a child observing a child. After D-Day, living conditions in the Netherlands briefly grew worse. During the 1944 to 1945 Dutch famine, the Germans had either hindered or reduced the already limited food and fuel supplies to civilians in retaliation for Dutch railway strikes that were held to hinder the occupation. Like others, Audrey's family resorted to making flour out of tulip bulbs to bake cakes and biscuits, and Dutch doctors provided recipes for using tulip bulbs throughout the famine. Suffering from the effects of malnutrition, after the war ended, Audrey became sick with jaundice, anemia, oedema, and a respiratory infection. Her mother reached out to a former British lover for help, who sent back thousands of cigarettes, which Ella was able to sell on the black market to buy penicillin, which ultimately saved Audrey's life. The war had completely decimated the family fortune. After the war ended in 1945, 16-year-old Audrey moved with her mother and siblings to Amsterdam, where she began formal ballet training. Due to the loss of the family fortune, Ella had to support them by working as a cook and housekeeper for a wealthy family. 
Audrey would make her film debut around this time, playing an air stewardess in Dutch in Seven Lessons from 1948, which was an educational travel film. Later that year, Audrey moved to London after receiving a prestigious ballet scholarship for a school in Notting Hill. She supported herself with part-time work as a model and dropped Rustin from her surname and took up Hepburn. She was soon told by an instructor that despite her talent, her late start in formal dance training due to the war, her height, which was 5'7", which was apparently too tall back then, and poor overall health due to wartime malnutrition meant that Audrey would never be able to attain the level of prima ballerina, so Audrey decided to concentrate on acting instead. She still danced to support herself, and she got work in the theater as a dancer and also performed at Ciro's London, which was apparently a pretty prestigious gig back then. During her theatrical work, Audrey took elocution lessons to develop her speaking voice. She was then discovered by a casting director in 1951 and was registered as a freelance actress for the Associated British Picture Corporation, or ABPC. While on the roster, she appeared in the BBC television play The Silent Village, amongst many, many others. Audrey's first major supporting role on film was in Secret People from 1952, in which she played a prodigious ballerina. While on location shooting a small role for the film Monte Carlo Baby, French novelist Colette spotted her and offered her the titular role in the Broadway play Gigi. Audrey had no formal theatrical stage training or acting experience and required private coaching. When Gigi opened in November 1951, she received praise for her performance. The play ran for 219 performances before going on tour and closing in San Francisco in May 1953. Audrey had first screen tested in 1951 for the part that would be her first starring film role. The film was Roman Holiday from 1953 and saw Audrey playing Princess Anne, a European princess who escapes the chains of royalty and has a wild time out with an American newsman played by Gregory Peck. The producers of the film had initially wanted Elizabeth Taylor for the role, but they'd been so impressed by Audrey's screen test that they cast her instead. Peck was so impressed while they were shooting that he called his agent to make sure Audrey got top billing alongside his when the film came out, a feat at the time that was only really held for big time movie stars. Now it's just kind of like you're one of the main people unless it's a vehicle for a star. His agent thought it was a little bit of a weird idea, but Peck was certain that Audrey was going to win the Oscar for her first film role, and he didn't want to be the schmuck who prevented her from getting top billing for an Academy Award winning performance. For what it's worth, Peck was right. Roman Holiday was a box office smash, and Audrey gained critical acclaim for her portrayal. She was the underdog, but ultimate winner for the Best Actress Oscar at the March 1954 ceremony. It would be Audrey's only Academy Award win. Audrey was soon signed to a seven-picture contract with Paramount, with 12 months allotted in between films to allow her to continue working on the stage. And Audrey had actually already returned to the stage. At the time she won the Oscar, she was appearing in the 1954 fantasy play On Dean or On Dine on Broadway. That performance won her the 1954 Tony for lead actress in a play three days after she'd won the Academy Award for Roman Holiday. During the production, Audrey and her co-star Mel Ferrer began dating and the two married on September 25th, 1954 in Switzerland. 
Following her success in Roman Holiday, Audrey starred in the rom-com Sabrina from 1954, in which wealthy brothers compete for the affections of their chauffeur's daughter, played by Audrey. For her performance, she was nominated for another Academy Award for Best Actress, while winning the BAFTA Award for Best Actress in a Leading Role the same year. Not a bad way to kick off a Hollywood career. Continuing her hot streak, Audrey was nominated for several awards for her role in War and Peace from 1956 that also co-starred her husband. Then came Funny Face from 1957, which showcased not just her dancing ability, but her singing as well. Audrey then played Sister Luke in The Nun Story from 1959, which focuses on the character's struggle to succeed as a nun. The role led to a third Academy Award nomination and earned her a second BAFTA. After a lukewarm reception in Green Mansions in 1959, she followed that up with The Unforgiven from 1960, which would be her only Western picture. While she had easily become an icon of Hollywood, both as an actress and as a style icon, offscreen, Audrey enjoyed the simpler things in life. A far cry from the opulence seen in many of her pictures. By all accounts, she was a humble and kind individual. She also saw her fame as a fluke, as she didn't think she was terribly attractive. She's easily one of the most attractive women that I think has ever lived. But, you know, grass is always greener, I suppose. In January of 1960, Audrey welcomed her first child with Ferrer, a son named Sean. Audrey next starred as New Yorker Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's from 1961, a film loosely based on Truman Capote's novella of the same name. Despite Capote not being happy with the changes between the book and the film, the Golightly character is considered one of the best known in American cinema and therefore one of, if not the signature role of Audrey Hepburn. Second would probably be Roman Holiday. She was, once again, nominated for the Best Actress Oscar for her performance. The song Moon River that Audrey performs in the film has been covered by other musicians over 1,000 times. Ironically, the studio actually tried to cut the song from the film. The next film Audrey shot, though it would be delayed, was Paris When It Sizzles from 1964, which was a screwball comedy. The film reunited Audrey with William Holden, whom had been one of her love interests in Sabrina. The film's production was troubled by several issues, namely Holden unsuccessfully trying to rekindle a romance with the now-married Audrey. He'd been married during their brief affair in 1954 and still was by the what by to the same person. They had like an agreement, I think, is, is the rumor. And his alcoholism was also beginning to affect his work. Also, after shooting began, Audrey demanded that the cinematographer be fired because she didn't like the way he was shooting her for the film. Superstitious, Audrey also insisted on Dressing Room 55 because that was her lucky number. The film was widely panned upon release. Audrey's next film of note was 1963's Charade, in which she played a young widow pursued by several men who chase after the fortune stolen by her murdered husband. Her main love interest was the 59-year-old Cary Grant, who was subconscious about his age difference with the 34-year-old Audrey. As a result, he was uncomfortable about the romantic scenes that had been written to occur between the two. To address his concerns, the filmmakers altered the screenplay so that Audrey's character was pursuing him and not the other way around. The role earned Audrey her third and final competitive BAFTA award and another Golden Globe nomination. 
Audrey's second film released in 1964 was My Fair Lady. Audrey's casting in the role of a Cockney flower girl was a tad controversial. That was because Julie Andrews had originated the role on stage, but was not offered the part because producer Jack Warner thought Audrey was a more quote-unquote bankable actress. Audrey initially asked Warner to give the role to Andrews, but was ultimately cast. Further tension was created when non-singer Audrey, who had sung in Funny Face and Breakfast at Tiffany's, and who had had intense vocal training for the role in My Fair Lady, had her vocals dubbed. When Audrey learned this, she walked off the set. But eventually, she conceded. Audrey's betrayal was eventually lauded by critics, and Julie Andrews won an Academy Award for Mary Poppins at the 1964 Academy Awards. Audrey didn't even get nominated, but three of her co-stars were. I'd say it's kind of hard to win an Oscar when you don't even sing in your movie, but that did happen to Robbie Malik, so clearly times change. After 1967, Audrey, now approaching 40, chose to devote more time to her family and acted only occasionally in the following decades. Audrey and Ferrer divorced in 1968. Ferrer was rumored to be too controlling. This and other accusations Audrey would laugh off over the years, however. She met her second husband, Andre Dotti, on a cruise with friends in June 1968. They married in January of 1969, and their son Luca was born the following February. They would officially divorce in 1982. Audrey had met Dutch actor Robert Walders in 1980, and the two were together for the rest of her life, though they never married. Just because she'd semi-retired, though, didn't mean her acting career was over. Audrey attempted a comeback playing Maid Marian in Robin Hood and Marian from 1976, which was moderately successful. Audrey's last starring role was in They All Laughed from 1981. The film was overshadowed, however, by the tragic murder of one of its stars, Dorothy Stratton, and only received a limited release as a result. We'll talk about that one day. That is a devastating, devastating story. In 1988, Audrey joined UNICEF as a goodwill ambassador. She knew firsthand the good work the organization did, having received their aid in the days and months and years following World War II. Audrey's first field mission for UNICEF was to Ethiopia in 1988. She visited an orphanage that took care of 500 starving children and had UNICEF provide food. In August, she went to Turkey on an immunization campaign. In October, she went to South America. The following year, she visited Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Sudan, and Bangladesh, all in the name of UNICEF and providing a better life for the children in those areas. In fact, most of the firsthand information that we have on Audrey, like Audrey talking about her life and her thoughts and her feelings and her career, come from her time as a UNICEF ambassador. She was intensely private of her personal life throughout the height of her career, but recognized that sharing her life would benefit UNICEF. Despite having semi-retired from acting, Audrey was an icon of the silver screen, so there was still a great deal of interest in the woman who'd entered their hearts as a European princess over 30 years prior. In 1990, she traveled to Vietnam, and two years later, her final trip was to Somalia. Everywhere Audrey went, she greeted the children with a warm presence and a caring heart, but something was happening inside of Audrey, something she never let the children see. After finishing her last motion picture role, a cameo appearance as an angel in Steven Spielberg's Always from 1989, Audrey only did two more entertainment or entertainment-adjacent projects. 
One was Guardians of the World with Audrey Hepburn, which was a PBS documentary. A one-hour special had preceded it in March 1991, and the series itself began its national PBS premiere on January 24th, 1993, which unfortunately also had a sad event overshadow its premiere. After returning from Somalia back to her current home in Switzerland in late September 1992, Audrey developed abdominal pains. While initial medical tests in Switzerland had inconclusive results, a procedure in Los Angeles uncovered a rare form of abdominal cancer. Having grown slowly over several years, the cancer had metastasized as a thin coating over her small intestine. After surgery, she began chemo, but the outlook was not good. Audrey and her family returned to Switzerland to celebrate what she was certain was her last Christmas. As she was still recovering from surgery, she was unable to fly on a commercial aircraft, so her long-term friend and honestly provider of her iconic dresses and image, fashion designer Hubert de Givenchy? I used to call it Givenchy, I know that's wrong. Givenchy? Shit. Givenchy. I paused to look it up. I just bought Shrek Crocs. I don't know fashion. But yeah, he arranged to send her back to Switzerland via private jet that he filled with flowers. Audrey spent her final days at her home and was occasionally well enough to take walks in her beloved garden. On January 20th, 1993, Audrey died in her sleep at home. Her funeral was held four days later. Audrey was posthumously awarded the 1993 Emmy Award for Outstanding Individual Achievement Informational Programming for an episode of her PBS docuseries. Another project she'd done before her death was a spoken word album, Audrey Hepburn's Enchanted Tales, which featured readings of classic children's stories and was recorded in 1992. It earned her a posthumous Grammy for Best Spoken Word Album for Children, making the actress an EGOT winner, one of only 18 in the entire world. If you don't know, EGOT is Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Even 30 years after her death, Audrey Hepburn remains a queen of the silver screen, a fashion icon, and ironically enough, a staple of the American cinema. Audrey's talent and beauty both inside and out sent ripples not just through the film industry, but through the world as well with her humanitarian work. Audrey Hepburn wasn't just a great actress. She was a phenomenal person. And how many people can honestly claim to be both? Holly, I'm in love with you. So what? So what? So plenty. I love you. You belong to me. No. People don't belong to people. Of course they do. I'm not going to let anyone put me in a cage. I don't want to put you in a cage. I want to love you. It's the same thing. No, it's not. Holly? I'm not Holly. I'm not Lula May either. I don't know who I am. I'm like Cat here. We're a couple of no-name slobs. We belong to nobody, and nobody belongs to us. We don't even belong to each other. Stop the cab. What do you think? This ought to be the right kind of place for a tough guy like you. Garbage cans, rats galore. Scram! I said take off! Speed it! Let's go! And that's going to do it for this week. 
If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. Check you later, Slater, I think is so hard when there's no spaces. Thank you for your lovely review on Apple Podcast. I very much appreciate it. It was very, very sweet. I'm glad that I'm interesting enough that you don't want to skip me because I have friends that skip me. (laughs) So at least I have strangers that don't. I could tell which ones y'all skip, by the way. And it's always the ones I work very hard on and do obscene amounts of research on. But then I'm like, hey, this. And then I get tons of views. And the ones I try, like, I try on everything, but like less hard. Anyway, uh, (laughs) in order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee where you buy me a coffee. I've got to go pick up some packages for a friend. So I'm going to get my coffee then because I needed to record this first. Otherwise, I was going to throw off my momentum. But I'll be having some fills later because it's my birthday weekend and I want some GD fills. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. No episode next week because October is a five Sunday month and I'll be recovering from birthday shenanigans. I know normally I take the last Sunday off, but yeah, I'm going to have like, you know, November and December weeks off. So I figured just do this one out and then it feels like there's more episodes in a row. Um, So, yeah, but after that, we're coming back with some good stuff. I know I've gotten this requested. I think I mentioned it in the script, but... Somebody did request this like all the way back in March. I was like, I'm doing it just not till October. But we're doing the life of Alfred Hitchcock. And we're also going to go into the production of several of his most famous films, like kind of what we like what we did for Francis Ford Coppola like last spring. We're going to do that again. But for Halloween, we're doing it with Alfred Hitchcock. We're doing it for Alfred Hitchcock. Anyway, Jesus, my brain is cats this week, I swear. But as always, thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.